You're listening to The Grindstone, a philosophy podcast from Purdue University. What's up, everybody? You're listening to The Grindstone podcast, the official podcast of the Department of Philosophy here at Purdue University. As always, I'm your host, Matthew Kroll. I am the Academic Program Manager for the Department of Philosophy. And with me today is Postdoctoral Research Fellow Michael Augustine. How are you, sir? I'm doing very well this morning. It's a little wet and windy here in West Lafayette, Indiana. So it's late okay. winter in, 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 in central Indiana, yeah, north central it's Indiana. Yeah, it's a typical Perfect. February morning. Yeah. What more can you ask for? Not much, because this has been a very mild winter. Um, so today you are here to introduce, I believe this is talk four in our series of the five PatFest lectures. That's right. Our talks that were given. Again, this was the conference, two-day conference um, at the end of April 2019 in honor of Dr. Patricia Kurd and her career as she retired last spring from the Department of Philosophy here at Purdue. So talk four that we're rolling out in this series was Dr. Dan Frank, who works here at Purdue University um, and happens to be my office neighbor. I hope we aren't disrupting him this morning. But, Michael, you have some insight into their relationship. Apparently, Dan and Pat have known each other for a very long time. Dan and Pat have known each other for about 40 years. Mm -hmm. They were graduate students together. Then, you know, they separated dan goes one place pat goes another place eventually they reunite here and where were they at as grad students university of pittsburgh okay and they disagree it seems about everything (laughs) which is fantastic because when you get the two of them in a room and they start talking about aristotle or they start talking about plato Uh, there's nothing that Dan says that Pat doesn't take issue with, or there's nothing that Pat says that Dan doesn't take issue with. And it's really spectacular to see a friendship of 40 years that has that kind of gentle hostility to it, and yet is so so loving and um, so respectful. That's amazing. That's beautiful. So the talk that Dan gave, I'll just say real quick, he started with a poem that he wrote that Mm -hmm. he dedicated to Pat. So it was great. It was just a nice personal moment. His talk actually started the conference. So it was the first on the Friday evening. And to start it with this poem that he had written to honor Pat and Mm -hmm. also just the group of friends that have known each other for a while. It was was sort of to Pat um, and the group in a sense and just their camaraderie and studying ancient philosophy, but obviously dedicated to Pat. I thought that was a great way to start it, um, especially because the last talk, uh, the Jim Lesher talk, which we don't have for this series, actually mm-hmm. analyzed a poem. So it was a nice um, symmetry or, you know, whatever, like a, a very, you know, in my end is my beginning sort of T.S. Eliot, East Coker kind of four quartets thing. Um, yeah, it, it, it's a beautiful poem. And for those listeners that know Plato, to some degree, you'll recognize themes from Plato's sophist. Dan talks about the distinction between being and not being, which is central to the dialogue. And nice. he also talks about, about the battle of gods and giants. So real quick, just to intro Dan's talk, just give us, if you would please, Michael, just to set up to what Dan's talk was about. Sure. So Dan's talk is, in a way, almost uh, impossible 
to describe in a short amount of time, but let me give Give you what I can. Um, Dan focuses on book seven, chapter one of Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics, where we get six different types of characters. There's the person of superhuman virtue. There's the person of virtue. There's the encratic character. This is the person who is conflicted about whether or not to do the right thing but ultimately does. There's the acrotic character, the person who struggles about whether to do the right thing and acts contrary to their better judgment. Mm-hmm. There's the vicious individual, and then there's the brutish person, as Dan puts it. And Aristotle doesn't say much about the two individuals that are at each end of the spectrum, the person of superhuman virtue and the brutish person. And what Dan tries to do is say, okay, let me see if I can make sense of who this person of superhuman virtue is supposed to be by looking to Maimonides. Um, As some of our listeners will know, Dan is uh, the director of the program in Jewish studies here at Purdue. And he also looks to the Stoics, um, a philosophical school that gains prominence in the Hellenistic period. So if I can just try to understand this real quick, you're saying um, that in Dan's talk, he offers his own interpretation or analysis of Aristotle's character of the person of superhuman virtue through reference to the Hellenistic philosophers and Maimonides um, and their interpretations of specifically this aspect of um, Aristotle's ethics or other aspects of Aristotle that help feed Dan's interpretation of things. That's exactly right. I mean, it's predictable, but it's also unfortunate that we only get so little from Aristotle. Again, he mm. only references Hector from Homer's poems as the person who is likely to have been this individual. So Dan sees an opportunity to build on uh, what Aristotle has to say and try and flesh out who this person is and the the problems that are raised by thinking about there's someone who's beyond human um, and has a morally excellent character. Again, I, I can't say much more than this because it's such a wide-ranging talk sure, sure. where Dan covers the entire spectrum. Um, I wish I could do more to summarize it in the few minutes that we have, but it's just you have to listen for yourself. It's just not possible. Awesome. No, thank you. Well said. And, yeah, I think this talk um, is a great listen. And, yeah, let's let the talk speak for itself. Yeah. I haven't done anything. I haven't done anything yet. <laughs> so, uh, you're driving down the highway, perhaps I-65 to Indy, and you see a billboard picturing a powerful, somewhat shady lawyer, the Hammer. He'll fight for your rights if and when you're in a collision, etc. Over 80 years of experience, the billboard proudly declares. How is this possible, you wonder, as the hammer looks to be about 40-something? Well, you know the answer. The years of experience is the sum of the years of service of all the firm's lawyers. Now, as I look at the list of speakers for this event over the next couple of days, I must say that we have close to 200 years of experience with our not-at-all-shady honoree. That amount of experience extends back to the time of Napoleon, Schubert, and Andrew Jackson. Wow. With this telescopic vision in mind, 
I'd like to commence with a poem that I have written for this occasion. Once we were Kuroi. Just a couple people are like, okay. Lads, Kuroi, lads. Once we were Kuroi, young and full of promise, ready to take a car far from mundane paths to realms of being and truth unchanging. We set off, and straightway there appeared a fork in the road where was riveted a bifurcated arrow. One arm directed us to a place called being, another to not being. Consternation beset us how to proceed. Not being seemed to invite us to oblivion, a place pleasant and not unaccustomed. After all, we were Kuroi. By contrast, being seemed somehow pregnant with possibility, maybe even necessity, a place with no appreciable wiggle room. Quickly, we opted for not being and proceeded forth. It was a frightful and peculiar ride. Unlike the Prince of Denmark's disjunction, our journey conjoined the two thusly, to be and not to be. Our journey was in equal measure breathtaking and confusing. Space and time, color and shape mixed with each other and separated. But we were not devoid of judgment. We remember that not being is said in many ways. And so we disambiguated the context and situation we found ourselves in. Finally, we arrived to not being, passing through a land of gods and giants. We were welcomed there and greeted by a goddess. Her utterance was sage. Welcome, Kuroi, and hearty congratulations on a job well done. Now it is time to rest and look forward soon to new journeys for you, Pam. I'm done. I'll sit down. <laughs> OK, so the first 10 chapters of book seven, where is um, uh, Sam? No. The first 10 chapters of book seven of the Nicomachean Ethics present Aristotle's most considered discussion of lack of self-control, acrasia, and how it is to be understood. But before he gets to work on this topic, he lays out, albeit schematically, a six-fold scheme of the general types of moral disposition or state, three good and three bad. In descending order, we have superhuman virtue, virtue, self-control, lack of self-control, vice, and finally, brutishness, triotes. It should be noted that Aristotle does not present these as I have just presented them in descending order of rank. Rather, he offers three contrastive pairs, virtue and vice, self-control and lack of self-control, and superhuman virtue and brutishness. The virtuous do what they do without internal friction, and so do the vicious, differing from each other insofar as the latter's view of the good is delusional, taking what in fact is bad as good and proceeding apace. 
The self-controlled and those lacking in self-control are both like the virtuous insofar as they know what they ought to do, what ought to be done. But unlike the virtues, virtuous, they have to battle successfully or unsuccessfully, as the case may be, against the powers, power of the affects, the passions. We should note, and this will become important later, that lack of internal friction, the mark of the virtuous and vicious person, does not mean that virtue entails a conspicuous lack of all affects or emotions, specifically painful ones. Pleasure does not invariably supervene in the doing of virtuous actions, even though Aristotle says, quote, no one would call a person just if he failed to delight in acting justly, or liberal if he failed to delight in liberal actions, and likewise in the other cases. He makes an adjustment in his discussion on courage in Book 3, Chapter 9, when he says that death and wounds will be painful to the brave man and against his will, but he will face them because it is noble to do so or because it is base not to do so. And the more he is possessed of virtue in its entirety and the happier he is, the more he will be pained at the thought of death. It is not the case then with all the virtues that the exercise of them is pleasant except insofar as it reaches its end. In general, quote, virtue has to do with affections and actions, things in which excess, things in which excess and deficiency go astray, while what is immediate, intermediate, is praised. Lack of internal friction, the mark of virtue and vice, and the inner state of the virtuous agent is the intermediate state between feeling too much or too little, and this in turn means just that the agent is not at risk from her affective side. She acts from beginning to end with a correct view of what must be done for the sake of the noble, feeling the requisite pain or pleasure as the case may be, but never desisting or succumbing. On the battlefield, to feel excessively bold indicates a foolhardy rashness, not courage. To feel too much fear is indicative of cowardice, not courage. But to feel just the right amount of fear in the circumstances is to be expected and is a sign of virtue. Virtue thus is a function of sizing up the situation and acting and feeling aright from a firm and stable disposition. Pretty familiar stuff. The final pair presented in the sixfold scheme is superhuman, hyperbole, virtue, superhuman virtue, and brutishness. How does Aristotle characterize these? Two points should be noted at the outset. He says very little about either one, especially the former, the superhuman virtue, presumably because these dispositions are scarcely human at all. Aristotle mentions the Trojan hero Hector as possessed of superhuman virtue, and he quotes Homer's description of Hector as seemingly, quote, not the son of a mortal man, but sired by a god, end quote. But Homer's account of Hector's origin is just about all we get, and it's not very helpful in understanding the kind of individual involved. Aristotle has a bit more to say about the brutish character. And one gets the impression, 
and this is the second point I want to stress, that his discussion of superhuman virtue is a foil for his rather fuller discussion of brutishness and the brutish person. For Aristotle, brutishness, like hyperbolic virtue, hyperbole, uh, is rare, which is hardly unexpected given its outlier status. Brutishness is found mostly among non-Greeks, quote, though some cases develop through disease or disablement. In Nicomachean Ethics, uh, Book 7, Chapter 5, Aristotle presents his fullest account of brutishness. It's gruesome, truly gruesome, and hardly worth mentioning. Women slitting open pregnant women and eating their fetuses, cannibalism, human sacrifice. Further, he adduces a morbid, a variety of morbid dispositions, such as pulling out one's hair, trichotillomania, and eating earth. If you didn't know any of my kids, one of them, I think, suffered from this disease. For Aristotle, all such are indicative of, quote, living by sensation alone. So characterized, brutishness is to be distinguished from badness or vice. Recall that vice, the twin opposed to virtue, shares a foundational rationality and rational starting points with virtue, self-control, and lack of self-control. All four are rational dispositions developed by agents with reasoning capacities. Even if the vicious, bad person is in the end delusional about what is really good and what should be aimed at, his mistaken view is the end, of, is the end result of a calculated series of actions. As Aristotle tartly notes in uh, Nicomachean Ethics 3.5, only a thoroughly stupid person could fail to know that the dispositions come about as a result of the sort of activity we display in relation to each kind of thing. It runs counter to reason to suppose that the person engaged in unjust actions does not wish to be unjust, or that the person engaged in self-indulgent action does not wish to be self-indulgent." One reaps what one sows, and vice, a vicious disposition, is the end result of a mature calculation, a chosen course of action. This latter serves, of course, to distinguish badness, viciousness, from brutishness, which is beyond the pale of reason. Brutishness is a truly bestial state, characterized, again, as living by sensation alone. Needless to say, there is no internal friction unsettling the brute. I've spent some time on the brute because I believe he, it, provides a good starting point to begin to understand its opposite, the superhumanly virtuous person. If the brute lives by sensation alone, it might seem reasonable to conclude that the superhumanly virtuous person lives by reason alone. But then we're forced to distinguish the latter from the virtuous agent, who likewise seems to live by reason alone. I'll get to this demarcation in due course, but first let us evaluate a substantive, one of the few substantive discussions of the subject at hand. It's an, actually an older discussion. In the second edition, 1980, of Aristotle's ethical theory, Hardy, W.F.R. Hardy, uh, appends a lengthy note to his chapter on moral weakness, 
itself a variant of a 1977 appendix to a 1964 article, Aristotle's Doctrine that Virtue is a Mean. In the 1980 note, Hardy discusses what he calls heroic superhuman virtue. Feeling distress at Aristotle's lack of a characterization of the superhumanly virtuous, he tries, he, Hardy, tries to find room for such a character in Aristotle's moral taxonomy. Hardy suggests that Aristotle can indeed accommodate such an outlier and proceeds to hunt him down, quote, in territory in which virtue is difficult. Hardy looks to the battlefield and notes, as we have, that the courageous person feels considerable distress in acting as he does. In so feeling, the agent is for Hardy more than just virtuous. He is heroically, superhumanly virtuous. And Hardy concludes his brief this way, quote, the extraordinary, and by that I think he's talking about the heroic superhuman man, the extraordinary man, might be on a level superior both to the continent man as having only innocent and moderate propensities and to the man of humdrum virtue for whom rightly desired ways of living are not difficult to attain. I find this gloss unsatisfactory. There's no indication in the passage on courage that Aristotle is imagining a superhuman character, a hero. While the courageous soldier's virtue is not well characterized as humdrum, it's still virtue and no more. I'm inclined to say that it's just in the nature of the virtue of courage to be admirable, not mundane. Battles and wars are extraordinary situations. Quote, territory in which virtue is difficult, as Hardy puts it. But that does not make every or any soldier standing his ground a hero at least in Aristotle's sense. Hardy is wrong, seems to me, to think that Aristotle has room for the hero in his moral taxonomy. Aristotle's moral universe is apparently exhausted by the fourfold scheme of virtue, self-control, lack of self-control, and vice. And yet the hero possessed of human virtue is a paradigm of sorts, not easily dismissed. At the treatise's end, we are exhorted to make ourselves immortal. You all remember that passage in Book 10, where mere mortals are urged to transcend their mortality by theorizing as much as possible. So here, in Book 7, divine heroic activity stands as a goal for human practical excellence. In this way, we are brought back to our starting point to try to understand the very nature of superhuman heroic virtue. Fast forward. I think that Maimonides, the great Spanish-Jewish Aristotelian, writing some 1,500 years after Aristotle, helps to clarify <clears throat> what Aristotle might, even should, intend in his discussion of superhuman virtue. Further, I think Maimonides helps bring into focus some limitations of Aristotle's views. Some of you may not know a lot about Maimonides, so here's some stuff. Maimonides distinguishes clearly between two moral paradigms, two moral paradigms, 
the wise and the pious, the hacham and the chassid. This distinction, drawn originally in the Hilchot Deot, in the Mishnah Torah, his legal code, serves to distinguish the humble man from the very humble man and the irascible from the exceedingly irascible person. The distinction is not forgotten in his philosophical magnum opus, his famous guide to the perplexed, and it comes out at the very end of that work. The work is divided into three parts and the very last chapters, 53 and 4, is where this comes out. In the final two chapters, 353 to 354, Maimonides first reminds us of the, uh, reminds us that chesed, piety or saintliness, denotes excess, especially as that applies to beneficent actions. And then proceeds to describe in ascending order the four perfections or goals that motivate and define human life. Wealth, health, moral perfection or virtue, and intellectual perfection, intellectual virtue. The two highest perfections are of special concern for us in the present context, namely moral perfection and intellectual perfection. The former, which I would equate with the excellence of the chacham, the wise man, is ranked at the very end of Maimonides' guide as penultimate. It's not the highest. The, excellent, the excellence of one perfect in his ethical qualities and honored by the multitude seems pretty clear that for Maimonides, the Chacham is to be identified with the Aristotelian Phronimos. In his description of the Chacham, he clarifies the social and interactive nature of the wise person's characteristic actions, noting that, quote, if a person is all alone and has no business with anyone, all the ethical qualities will be found to be vain and void, end quote. So I take as unproblematic the identification of the hacham, the wise sage, with the Aristotelian phronimos. And I'll proceed on this assumption. Read in a cursory way, Maimonides' description of the highest human perfection and of the individual who has achieved this end may likewise remind us of Aristotle and his own description of the theoretician at the end of the Nicomachean Ethics. Like the Aristotelian paradigm, the excellence of the truly perfected individual, which Maimonides describes as knowledge of God, brings eternity of a sort. And as Maimonides says, quote, by it man is man. With respect to this latter characterization, by which, by it, man is man, one of course immediately compares Aristotle's comment at the end of Book 10, Chapter 7. What belongs to each kind of creature by nature is best and most pleasant for each. For the human being, the life in accordance with intelligence, bios, is so too, given that one is this most of all. Both Aristotle and Maimonides agree that it is by virtue of the best activity that the human being is fulfilled. We might thus conclude that Maimonides, like Aristotle, opts for theoria, the exercise of speculative reason, as the summum bonum. However, it would be a mistake to conclude that the summum bonum for Maimonides 
knowledge of God is Aristotelian theoria. The end of Maimonides' guide, really the very end of Maimonides' guide, clarifies beyond any doubt that the knowledge of God, the summum bonum, has a moral, even political component to it. Differing from the penultimate good of the wise sage, the Chacham, by virtue of its divine, not civic, foundation. Maimonides ends his philosophical magnum opus, the guide, this way, quote, the perfection in which one can truly glory is that achieved by one who has attained comprehension of God to the extent of one's powers and knows in what manner God provides for his creatures in creating them and governing them, and who, after comprehending this, aims in one's own conduct at mercy, saintly loving-kindness, justice, and righteousness, so as to imitate God's actions as we have repeatedly explained in this treatise." End quote. It's evident that knowledge of God entails imitation of God's beneficent actions, and that moral and political action grounded in such knowledge is the summum bonum for Maimonides. In opting for this construal of the human good, Maimonides is seen to part company with Aristotle, whose choice for the summum bonum is divine theoretical activity, which by its nature is bereft of the moral and political implications outlined by Maimonides. I might note in passing that Maimonides' view, as I'm sure some of you may have already seen, is not in itself un-Greek. Influenced here proximately by Farabi, the famous 10th century Islamic thinker, influenced here proximately by Farabi, Maimonides is ultimately beholden to Plato and the latter's choice of a philosophically trained ruler as paradigmatic. For Maimonides, the prophet is a philosopher king, grounding political legislation in knowledge of God. So Aristotle and Maimonides part company in their choices for what constitutes the summum bonum and paradigmatically divine activity. But they do agree in general that the summum bonum is an imitation of God, an imitation of the activity of an incorporeal being whose characteristic activity is superhuman. For Aristotle, this activity activity in accordance with the immortal part of us is theorizing. And for Aristotle, quote, happiness extends as far as theory does, and to those who have more of it, more happiness belongs to, not incidentally, but just in virtue of the activity itself, end quote. Contrarily, for Maimonides, this activity has, as we have seen, a moral and political component but one grounded in knowledge of God and his governance of the world. As Maimonides says in the first part of the guide, uh, part one, ch uh, chapter 54, quote, the highest virtue to which one can aspire is to become similar to God as far as this is possible. This means that we must imitate his actions by our own, as has been indicated by our rabbis in their comment on the words, you shall be holy, from Leviticus. The rabbi said, 
quote, as he is, as God, as he is gracious, so be you gracious. As he is merciful, so you be merciful. Now, this passage needs to be understood very carefully. Often, I don't think it is well understood. The Maimonidean point that the summum bonum is imitation of God's ways, God's actions, requires us to understand that at the highest level, moral actions are to be done as God does them. Analogous to Aristotle's point that just actions are just, really just, not nominally so, if and only if they are done as the just person does them. So here Maimonides is indicating that at the highest level, moral action must flow from a divine-like disposition. Something less may still count as moral. And I've suggested that the moral actions of the hacham, the wise person, are precisely this. But again, at the highest level, moral action must conform to those of the divine. Now, conformity to the divine, likening our actions to divine actions, has some interesting implications. Given the incorporeal nature of the divine, God is not, cannot be, subject to affections as these are dependent upon corporeality. In the Maimonidean scheme, then, the Aristotelian link between affection and action, the hallmark of the latter's moral theory, is sundered at the highest level. For Aristotle, feeling aright as one acts, having the right emotional response of pleasure or pain, is central to ethical evaluation. You recall, Virtue, Aristotle, virtue has to do with affections and actions, things in which excess and deficiency go astray, while what is intermediate is praised and gets it right. Aristotle. Not so for Maimonides, as we now can see. At the highest level, that of piety, morality does not have to do with affections, simply because imitation of God requires a dispassionate affectionless attitude. In guide, uh, in the guide, uh, part one, chapter 54, Maimonides presents an example of the, his paradigm, and we should note it well. It's kind of horrifying, but here it is. Quote, a ruler, if he's a prophet, must model his conduct on the divine attributes. Acts of this kind should with him spring from mature reflections and be commensurate with the crime rather than from mere affection. He should never give rein to his anger or allow his affections to get the better of him, for all affection is evil. But he must keep aloof from them as far as that is possible for man. If he does so, he will on some occasion be gracious and merciful to some men, not out of tenderness and sympathy, but because such a course is indicated. Actually, I think I left out the uh, horrible part. Anyway, for Maimonides, 
the moral exemplar, the prophet, dispassionate as he acts, imitating the divine in precisely this way. The contrast with Aristotle is pointed and clear. The link between affection and action is sundered. And the summum bonum for Maimonides is un-Aristotelian, divinely grounded moral and political action. Nevertheless, both agree that the summum bonum entails transcendence of our mortality. For Aristotle, it requires engaging in theoria, theoria, the characteristic activity of disengaged deities, for whom everything about practical doings will obviously turn out to be petty and unworthy of them, says Aristotle. While for Maimonides, it requires dispassionate moral and political activity in imitation of divine activity. We've seen then that for Maimonides, morality at the highest level of piety is grounded in dispassion. For Aristotle, the paradigm of moral virtue, the phronimos, cultivates the emotional responses proper to the circumstances. The difference here depends upon the ultimate foundation for morality. For Maimonides, the divine provides the foundation. For Aristotle, it's the phronimos, who is the standard for comparison. Maimonidean piety, acting as God acts in the moral and political sphere, is prima facie a non-starter for Aristotle, precisely because the latter has no notion of a moral divinity, of a God who does more than theorize. For Aristotle, in acting as the gods act, we are perforce disengaged from, moral and from the moral and political realm. For Maimonides, quoting Jeremiah, quote, but only in this should one glory, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises mercy, justice, and righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight. In knowing and imitating God, we are driven back into the world, acting as a partner with the divine in history. In suggesting that the phronimos is the moral paradigm of moral virtue for Aristotle, we once again confront the person of superhuman, hyperbolic virtue. In mentioning him, a heroic or even divine sort, says Aristotle, it would appear that Aristotle has a second moral paradigm in mind, perhaps akin to the Maimonidean pious person, the saint. But the similarity founders once we remember that Aristotelian divinities are not moral agents, indeed cannot be because they are incorporeal and moral virtue requires a capacity for affectivity. And Aristotle makes this very point quite explicitly in uh, NE6 when he says, quote, as animals cannot possess badness or excellence, so neither can a god. The gods cannot ground morality for Aristotle. Who else can apart from the phronimos? And if there is no other grounding, what room is there in Aristotle's scheme for superhuman virtue? So we come back to that question again. We have previously seen that for Aristotle, the person of superhuman virtue stands in polar opposition to the brute who lives without reason by sensation alone. It's clear that the antithesis to the brute 
is a being without a tincture of bestial animality, we might say. Now, this could include any normal human with a stable set of emotions harnessed to reason. But the superhuman hero is more than this. And when Aristotle likens the hero to a god, what is suggested, I think, is an, is an individual with a distinct lack of affectivity. But just here, then, once again, our conundrum arises. The more godlike a person is, the more incapable of moral virtue. And Aristotle says as much as we have just seen. In sum, the person of superhuman excellence is either no different from the phronimos or off the scale of moral virtue. The brave superhero either fears a right or does not fear at all. If the former, he's no different from the courageous soldier. And if the latter, he is nameless, anonymous, according to Aristotle. Quote, some sort of madman or someone immune to pain. In any event, off the scale for moral virtue. We can make this general point in a slightly different way. For Aristotle, in the sphere of moral virtue, the intermediate, temperance, courage, is the extreme. And he says this. And there's no excess of temperance or courage. Virtue does not admit of degree. Either one is courageous or not. And there can be, for Aristotle, no individual who is, strictly speaking, very extremely courageous. The phronimos is paradigmatic here, leaving no room for hyperbolic superhuman virtue as a category of moral virtue. If the hero is virtuous, he's no different from the phronimos. And if he's different from the latter, then he's not virtuous, in so many words. So what's left for the godlike Aristotelian hero to be? We're running out of room. Probably running out of time, but we're running out of room. He's off the moral scale. What remains is the amoral and apolitical life, the being of the Book 10 theorizer, imitating the divine in his intellectual activity. But it seems absurd to identify the person of superhuman virtue, the Homeric hero, with the theoretician, if for no other reason than that the former is presented and discussed in the context of the six-fold scheme of states of moral character. Superhuman virtue, virtue, continence, and their three opposites. Standing on the field of battle, the hero needs to focus on the task at hand, and it better not be engaged in theory, sort of a Thales kind of character, in contemplating the heavens. In sum, the rhetoric of, or, of Aristotle's moral taxonomy has outpaced him. In wishing to find some moral room for the opposite of the brute, he conjures up a godlike being whose very nature would put him beyond the pale of moral virtue. Aristotle's problem about the place in his moral universe for the hero, the person of, human, of superhuman virtue, would have been considerably lessened if he could have found room for something like piety in Maimonides' sense. As noted, Maimonides grounds piety in the nature of an incorporeal moral divinity. Maimonides can make room for a superhuman moral agent because for him 
there exists a divine being whose moral action can be imitated. There is no such being for Aristotle. So now, changing gears a little bit, now I want to ask if superhuman virtue requires a moral divinity. Is the God of Abraham the only foundation for the kind of virtue that Aristotle denominates superhuman and Maimonides characterizes as piety? We might think so on the assumption that superhuman virtue is and must be imitation of the actions of a moral divinity. In imitating such a being, we perform actions as God does, dispassionately, and this is piety. Accordingly, piety and superhuman virtue are grounded in the reality and imitation of moral divinity, so the argument might go. I think, however, we might consider at least one other foundation, one other possible foundation for piety, nature. In this regard, we turn to the Stoics, who understand the goal of life as living in accordance with divine nature. Over the years, there's been considerable debate in the literature about the notion of, quote, living in accordance with nature, catechism. The traditional view emphasizes a cosmic perspective. In the first book of his uh, work on ends, Definibus, Chrysippus asserts that our individual natures are parts of the nature of the whole universe. The microcosm, macrocosm, suggests that the human good is grounded in and depends upon attaining a cosmic perspective, an impartial, non-parochial view from nowhere, and ordering one's life to this. According to this view, Stoic ethical theory cannot be detached from its context in Stoic physics, so much so that the latter, and only the latter, provides the foundation for ethics. Indeed, short of achieving this kind of cosmic perspective attained through physics, the moral agent will be without an understanding of providential nature, leaving her vulnerable without the conceptual framework to understand what is really of value and what is not. Without a deep understanding and consequent appreciation of the world order, the cosmos, one will have no clear grasp of what one may affect and of what is in one's control and what is not. Knowledge of the natural world, physics, underwrites human well-being according to this traditional view of Stoicism. A different view of living in accordance with nature is promoted by uh, Julia Annis, which I would characterize the following way. The nature in accordance with which we should live is perfected human nature, not divine providential nature. There is no cosmic perspective that grounds human well-being on this account, on Julia's account, Julia Annis's account. This tends to bring Stoic moral doctrine into line with Aristotle's brand of eudaimonism. To the extent that their respective moral theories are autonomous, grounded in human, not cosmic principles. 
fully developed human nature provides the baseline for ascertaining the nature of the summum bonum. This view, in large measure grounded in the Stoic cursus studiorum, logic followed by ethics followed by physics, understands the role of physics vis-a-vis -vis ethics in non-foundational terms. Physics studied only after ethical principles are in place and only after the motivational structure that those very ethical principles provide have taken hold in the agent can merely offer us a broader perspective on our lives by placing them in a cosmic context. But again, this cosmic perspective adds nothing of moral, motivational value to principles already established at the earlier stage. Perhaps we can frame this foundational debate with help from Socrates, the paradigmatic wise man for the Stoics. Well, what is it that makes Socrates paradigmatic for the Stoics? Lots of things, to be sure. His self-sufficiency, his invulnerability, his commitment to the overwhelming importance of virtue in human life. Finally, the Stoics admired Socrates' supreme rationality and self-control, but not in Aristotle's sense of self-control. Instead, the emotions, the pathé, that normally attach themselves to external goods, such as honor and money, and rightly so for Aristotle, are detached from them. Socrates' role as the moral exemplar for the Stoics is due to his pervasive rationality and consequent detachment from the material world, from conventional and ephemeral values about the nature and the sources of happiness. The source of such Socratic detachment for the Stoics, somewhat problematic. Is it derived from their general view of the cosmos or from something less grand? If one accepts the cosmic view, then we should understand such indifference to and detachment from what the world takes to be of value as derived from a true understanding of the providential nature of the cosmos, of which the human being is but a part, and a consequent appreciation of the relative unimportance of material goods, of what is ephemeral and outside of our control. If we accept the non-cosmic, more parochial view, that indifference to externals and belief in the self-sufficiency of virtue is derived from perfected human nature and the goals of human life, then Socrates and the Stoics' anti-conventionalism can be seen as a pretty direct response to Aristotle and the latter's view about the relative, uh, relative importance or unimportance of externals in any reasonable conception of human well-being. Whichever view we adopt, and it may even be as Long, Tony Long has suggested, that there is no incompatibility between natural teleology and the normative development of the human's self, human subject's self-reflection, the Stoic Socratic moral paradigm shares with the moral divinity of the Abrahamic traditions, at least as interpreted by Maimonides, an important feature, dispassion. 
The Stoic sage, unlike Aristotle's moral paradigm, the phronimos, is dispassionate as he goes about his business. Whatever the ultimate source of such detachment, the crucial point is that moral perfection and human well-being depend on an understanding of the relative unimportance of ephemeral, external goods, such as honor and money, a consequent indifference to them and the resulting loosening of emotional attachment to them. And I've got to put in a plug to my favorite philosopher, Spinoza. It should be noted, says Spinoza, that sickness of the mind and misfortunes take their origin especially from too much love toward a thing which is liable to many variations and which we can never fully possess. For no one is disturbed or anxious concerning anything unless he loves it, nor do wrongs, suspicions, and enmities arise except from love for a thing which no one can really fully possess. That's from the final book of his ethics. To return. Stoic apatheia is a function of coming to see that, with respect to human happiness, virtue is the only absolute value, and consequently the only thing to which one should be firmly attached. In fact, the eupatheii, the good emotions, joy, wish, caution, are all indexed to this one true good, virtue. As such, they are not irrational, they're not irrational and fluctuating like the other emotions. They're signs of a healthy outlook on life, grounded in a clear view of what is of real value and what dooms one to uncertainty and unhappiness. Now recall the question that inaugurated our present discussion was whether superhuman virtue required a moral divinity. It seemed that to make sense of superhuman virtue, a divine moral agent was requisite. One who acts dispassionately has ex hypothesi only divine moral agent can. And given the absence of such a divine being, Aristotle saddled himself with the impossible task of trying to account for superhuman virtue while not having a moral divinity in his ontology. I've shown, I hope, that Aristotle is without the requisite conceptual resources to account for superhuman virtue. But I think we can now see that the God of Abraham is not the only possible source for what Aristotle calls superhuman virtue. The Stoic sage, or even nature herself, understood by the Stoics as providentially guided, indeed as the divine order, Zeus, could well provide the requisite moral foundation and modeling oneself on either of these might account for superhuman virtue or piety. So the Stoic sage joins hands with the Maimonidean saint, the pious person, in significant ways. Most significantly, both act as they do dispassionately and in a detached way, evincing little concern with what the world takes to be of value. But just now here, an important distinction between Stoics and Maimonides uh, is to be noted. 
For the Stoics, likewise for the historical Socrates, the manifest lack of concern for and indifference to what Sarah Brody calls preliminary goods, a basic income, health, a steady job. Socrates, after all, was unemployed, dependent on the kindness of his friends. Uh, let, me, let me start that sentence again. For the Stoics, likewise for the historical Socrates, the manifest lack of concern for and indifference to what Sarah Brody calls preliminary goods, basic income, health, steady job, and the decoupling of such externals and bodily goods from a constitutive role in virtue and happiness carries in its train a correlative lack of concern for and indifference to those for whom such indifference, adiaphora, are significant and pressing needs. I'm here thinking of the poor, the oppressed, or those substantively deprived who, who lie outside what would ordinarily be considered one's sphere of moral responsibility and concern. In passing, it should be noted that Aristotle likewise evinces no concern for the disenfranchised, not, of course, because he shares with the Stoics a belief in the relative unimportance of the preliminary goods, but rather because he understands these very goods, wealth and so on, as instrumental to living well for flourishing, not merely for living, for surviving from dawn to dusk. The Stoics, to return to them, do not account well for the disenfranchised, even though and this is important and famous, their political vision is cosmopolitan, urging humans to embrace the whole of humanity. The Stoics thereby press us toward impartiality, toward seeing the world, contra Aristotle, in non-parochial terms. You'll recall, of course, the famous image of ever-contracting concentric circles by a second century Stoic Heracles, urging us to extend the reach of our instinctual sympathies so far that we care for all just as we care for those closest to us. Such a cosmopolitan vision for humanity, for humanity at large, is bracing. And the Stoics' belief in the reality of a natural law that exists apart from and stands in judgment over civil law is a high point in political thought. And yet such impartiality might seem less embracing, less progressive, not concerned enough with the disenfranchised for whom the indifference are existential necessities. From this angle, Stoic impartialism and inclusivism, radical in its insistence to treat strangers as kin, to include all people in a universal community of rational agents, can be contested. Throughout their discussion of impartiality, cosmopolitanism, and even concern for others, there's not a word about 
nor sensitivity for those for whom preliminary goods, indifference, the adiaphora, or the Stoics are vital. The Stoic conception of humanity is indifferent to those for whom the indifference matter. The Stoics are indifferent to them because in making self-sufficiency and invulnerability to fortune a desideratum for a universal community of rational agents, they dismiss the real value, the real value of the preliminary goods. And in so doing, evince a blindness for those, the poor, who are in particular need of those resources. To be sure, for the Stoics, the preliminary goods are accorded the status of preferred, pregnina, preferred indifference. For the Stoics, we are naturally disposed to prefer wealth to poverty, and we should opt for the former if it's not purchased at the price of virtue, the one absolute and incommensurable value. But treating virtue as incommensurable and detached from everything else is troubling, for it signals that for the Stoics, what some take to be valuable and is, really is, of real value, so vitally important that they can imagine little else, has merely absence, has merely relative value, or for one radical Stoic, Ariston of Chios, absolutely no value at all. While focusing on the absolute self-sufficiency of virtue and its capacity to render human beings immune from harm, the Stoics treat the preliminary goods as valueless, perhaps even harmful. But such a dismissal of the preliminary goods is pari passu, a dismissal of what is of real value to those for whom invulnerability to fortune is, as Brody tartly puts it, an irrelevant luxury. Vlastos once accused Socrates of a failure of love, even as he attempted to save his interlocutors from themselves and their misconceived priorities. Vlastos revealed Socrates as bereft of a true notion of humanity and human suffering, being concerned with his interlocutors only to the extent that they embodied the idea, the ideal of truth and its rational pursuit. Similarly, I think it can be argued that Stoic inclusiveness is, in the end, compatible with a distinct lack of concern for others, with not recognizing that some people have special needs. Like their patron saint, the Stoics perhaps unsurprisingly lack a certain compassion. Let me stress here that my critique is of Stoic impartialism and inclusiveness in particular blind as it is to the particular needs of those in desperate straits. By way of contrast, I quote Justice Brennan, the great Supreme Court Justice, in Goldberg versus Kelly, 1970, a case arguing for a requirement of an evidentiary hearing before a recipient of certain government welfare benefits, but, sorry, a case arguing for a requirement of an evidentiary hearing before a, certain, before a recipient of certain government welfare benefits can be deprived of those benefits. 
Justice Brandon writes, from its founding, the nation's, our country, the nation's basic commitment has been to foster the dignity and well-being of all persons within its borders. We have come to recognize that forces not within the control of the poor contribute to their poverty. Welfare, by meeting the basic man's demands of subsistence, can help bring within the reach of the poor the same opportunities that are available to others to participate meaningfully in the life of the community. Public assistance, then, is not mere charity, but a means, quote, to promote the general welfare and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, which we all know from the preamble to the Constitution. Justice Brennan evinces concern for a particularly vulnerable group, the poor. Grounding his concern in an historic national commitment to promote the dignity and well-being of all citizens and the consequent goal of providing, quote, the poor, the same opportunities that are available to others to participate meaningfully in the life of the community, end quote. Public policy and law join hands here with a keen sense of human, invul sorry, human vulnerability. Public assistance, note, not mere charity, is grounded both in the ideal of human dignity and in the circumstance of historical inequity. The Stoics cannot account for the inequity because their brand of cosmopolitanism elides historical and socioeconomic differences. Further, by insisting that material goods are irrelevant for happiness, they tend to perpetuate those very inequities. I think that the spirit that quickens Justice Brennan's words also animates the contemporary to Justice Brennan, uh, theory of justice as developed by Rawls. 1971, 1970, Justice Brennan is writing and so on. To guarantee basic liberties, freedom of conscience, of thought and expression, and of political participation, Rawls requires that differences in income and wealth, primarily social goods, and in social position be structured for the maximal benefit of the worst off members of society. Justice as fairness, described by Rawls, quote, as a fair way of meeting the arbitrariness of fortune, end quote, presumes benevolence and a principle of common humanity, in Justice, Brennan Justice Brennan's words, a basic commitment to foster the dignity and well-being of all persons. Of his own difference principle, Rawls says, quote, the difference principle corresponds to a natural meaning of fraternity, namely to the idea of not wanting to have greater advantage unless this is to the benefit, unless this is to the benefit of others who are less well off. End quote. Obviously, much, much more could be said on this topic but I hope to have suggested what needs to be done to accommodate the Stoic view in light of more liberal or progressive positions. 
truly understanding the plight of the poor and the disenfranchised motivates affirmative action on their behalf. Such action seems to flow neither from a divinely providential nature nor from a view of human nature that treats material goods as insignificant, nor from an impartialist outlook bereft of a rich notion of charity. Now, I don't know whether charity is a theological virtue, ordering us to a supernatural end, but Maimonides saw it arising from a view of God, quote, who exercises mercy, loving kindness, justice and righteousness in the earth, end quote. We do well, I think, to remember that justice literally is charity in this tradition. Thank you. The Grindstone is brought to you by the Department of Philosophy at Purdue University and is supported by the College of Liberal Arts at Purdue. Our intro and outro music is by Al Terity. You can follow the Department of Philosophy at Purdue on Facebook at Philosophy at Purdue, on Twitter at Philo, all caps, P-H-I-L-O, underscore Purdue, and on Instagram at Philo underscore Purdue.